Okay, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I've had a little bit of a hiatus, and I feel as if I don't try to share some of the things that I'm studying, uh, that I'm studying for no reason. So I wanted to start doing a study through the book of Job, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. So, um, Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. So I guess to begin the discussion, and my goal is just to simply probably get no further than these words, um, but just to note a few things about the nature of the book of Job. Um, we have to say something about uh, the subject of the book and what, what, what is the book about. While this may seem counterintuitive, I'm going to say it like this. The book of Job is not about Job. In the same way, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth and the book of, books of Samuel are not about those characters. All of these have a greater subject than can be contained in their central supporting characters. The book is not about how the righteous suffer or why they suffer. And that may even sound more surprising because that's generally what we say about the book of Job, that it's about how the righteous suffer or, or the reason for it. The book of Job is about God. God is the protagonist in the story. It is his actions that cause the story to take shape. And he is the end to which the story leads. God desired to be glorified through the life of Job. And every character in the book was an eventual, eventual rather antagonist against that end. Even at some point, Job was an eventual antagonist. In the end, God was glorified in all points in the life of Job. And that's basically going to be the outline of my study. God was glorified in his initial blessing, his suffering, his trial, and his vindication. And there's personal application that you and I can draw from that. The sooner we realize that what you and I go through is not about us, but about God and His glory, the more content and joyful you and I will be. The theme throughout all of this book, this, the book of Job, is the greatness of God and how it is known in all of His works, which includes profound suffering. When Paul would later say in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good. This is exemplified in this book. God's works working for the end of his glory and the good of those that love him. With the subject being clear, Job is still the central character of the book. And as Paul knew about his repeated testimonies of conversion, his story is told for the glory of God. Job is the medium by which we come to, clear, to clearly see the sovereignty of God over all things, which is another central theme of the book. 
God exercises his will over everything and works all things according to his good pleasure. He does as he pleases in the life of Job. It is his life that creates the backdrop for us to see the greatness of God. Our lives have the same purpose. Even if our lives are not immortalized in Scripture, they will likewise be pressed onto the background of eternity, where God is the potter and we are the clay. Who is Job? There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Now, just a few things about this, the, the character of Job, and maybe a little bit about when it was written can help it, help answer it, and I'm going to give you my opinions and, and the reasons why I've reached these opinions. The book of Job was written sometime after the dispersion and judgment of mankind at Babel, as recorded in Genesis chapter 11. It is not possible that it was a pre-flood story, since Job 22 in the speech of Eliaphaz, the judgment of the great flood, was mentioned. And it's not likely to have been a post-Moses writing, since it offers no mention of the revelation of God at Sinai. So it was written and contains the history of something between Babel and Sinai. We have here the mention of the land of Uz where Job resided. And we add to it names of other dispersed nations in this book, which we'll get to much later. Uz, at least as we run into it first in the book of Genesis, was the grandson of Shem, one of Noah's three sons. The son of Aram, Genesis 10, 22, and 23, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 17. This if he's connected with this individual and in his place in the table of nations in Genesis 10, would make Job most likely part of the family of Uz within a couple of generations of the dispersing of the nations from Babel. There is, of course, another Uz in the connection uh, to the descendants of Esau, but it's unlikely that this would answer to the Uz of Job seeing that there is nothing to tie it to the specific land mentioned by that name in the Table of Nations. So I'm really relying more on the Table of Nations as opposed um, to the descendant of Edom, and I'm going to give you a couple more reasons for that. While it is not beyond the possibility, of course, that um, that uh, Uz was, was connected to the Edomites, uh, it is unlikely to be an Edomite, or Job was unlikely, rather, to be an Edomite, without some mention of enmity with the descendants of Jacob or the revelation of God to Abraham. It is possible that Edom dwelt in that very same land, the land of Uz, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, and thus there was some kind of namesake connection. Another reason to make this distinction is the age at which Job is purported to have lived. We could estimate that Job lived around 200 years based upon uh, the very last chapter. His lifespan would have fit more readily among those just a few generations removed from the flood of Noah as opposed to several generations after the calling of Abraham. Take, for instance, Jacob. Jacob lived to a ripe old age of 147. 
when you read the book of Job, there is this feeling that you are reading something that represents older traditions that were yet ignorant of God revealing himself to Abraham, either due to a separation of distance or a separation of time. So Job, like I said, was likely a Shemite, living several generations prior to or up to the time of Abraham. We will look later at other nations that are named, and maybe we can refine a little bit of our timetable. But I thought, as far as an introduction to the book, uh, it would be tedious here to get into where Eliaphaz and Bildad held from and how that fit into the scheme. We'll deal with that when we talk about those characters. The question is also, who wrote the book of Job? And... That will shed a little bit more light, although uh, we don't know much about the author. The author is anonymous, and that's okay. It's okay that we have an anonymous letter here. We know only that it eventually came to be numbered among the oracles of Scripture that were committed to Israel, as Paul taught in Romans chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. The last verse of the book indicates that it was written by someone who knew the life of Job, and was acquainted firsthand with the conversations found in Job. Now, that allows us to surmise a little bit. Some people believe Elihu, the man that began to speak, uh, to speak uh, after Job finished speaking, was the originator of the writing, or at least the oral tradition. It's rooted in Jewish tradition, and there is yet one clue to how that tradition connects to Israel. Job, as we read Job, appeared to be part of a priestly tradition in the patriarchal age. Job acted as a priest, offering sacrifices, first on behalf of his children and at the end of the book on behalf of his friends. Belonging to this pre-law priestly caste, he was a priest of the Most High God. This puts Job in the same class as men like Melchizedek and Jethro in Genesis 14, Exodus 3, who were also designated as priests of God. It's possible then that Melchizedek or Jethro were, were the authors or at least the originators of the oral tradition or at least its introduction to the Hebrews it's further possible that Moses himself was the editor of the book in its final form that you and I have today. But that's a lot of speculation. It's an anonymous writing that somehow ended up among the oracles that were committed to the nation of Israel and laid up in the temple. Job, as a historical character, is attested once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 14, and verse 14 and 20, uh, Ezekiel is speaking uh, to the Israelites, and he says a list of uh, Noah and Job and Daniel among righteous men who were delivered for their righteousness. And it says that if they were alive in those days then they would deliver themselves only for their own righteousness, but would be unable to deliver others. And then there is the mention of James. 
James chapter 5, verse 11 says, you, you have heard of the patience of Job, but have you seen the end of the Lord, that he is compassionate and full of mercy? Each of these give us a good working thesis on, an over, on the overall themes dealt with in the book at different interpretational epochs or times. Consider Ezekiel. At the end of First Temple Judaism, Ezekiel wrote his words. At a time of the pending destruction of the nation of Israel and its temple, an exile that loomed over them, Ezekiel saw Job as one who, because of his righteousness, was delivered by God from judgment and even the means of delivering others, possibly his friends at the end of the book as he offered sacrifices for them. It was used, however, to warn those under judgment at that time that there was no hope for anyone to stand up on their behalf to deliver them from God's wrath that was rightly coming upon them. They needed their own righteousness as Job had his own righteousness, or a righteousness at least that we will see was accounted to him. James, at the end of Second Temple Judaism, after Christ had brought in everlasting righteousness, saw Job as an example of one that was an object of the grace and compassion of his Lord, whom God brought through tribulation. He gives hope to the one suffering as a Christian and waits for his and who waits for his Lord, that the end of the Lord is indeed good. One way to look at the Old Testament versus New Testament perspectives is to see them as asking two separate questions of the readers. The old asks the reader if they believe that they are righteous, righteous enough to escape the holy judgment of God. Job was righteous, and he was delivered. Job was righteous and was even a help in the delivery of others. But the readers and hearers of Ezekiel were not righteous. The new ask us if you know, if we rather know the grace of God. To people who, like Job, own God or own Christ as their Lord, and were enduring for him, it serves to remind them that the grace of God will bring them through as it did Job. Now the structure of the book of Job is very simple. There is a beginning and an ending declaration of blessings. It begins with Job being blessed. It ends with Job being blessed. And he is blessed of God. God is the source of those blessings. There is a conflict between God and Satan, wherein God makes Job the subject of suffering. Then there is this alternate dialogue, alternating rather, dialogue between Job and his friends, with God giving the final word in the dialogue. There's only 12 speaking characters in the book at large, most of them minor, a few of them major. There is God, there is Satan, there is Job. There's four servants of Job, there's the wife of Job, there's three friends of Job, and then there's a young man named Elihu. And those are the twelve speaking characters. The subject of the dialogue is 
why is Job suffering? The reader has this grand benefit of being behind the scenes and seeing everything that is going on. They have the benefit of the full historical view. The reader and the hearer of the book of Job knows why Job is suffering. But the characters, with the exception of of God, are still in the flow of God's historical revelation and are trying to make sense of God's plot of what God is doing. It is a work of poetry, which probably is so because it aided in memorization and the movement of it through oral tradition until it was established in writing. We may be tempted to oversimplify the purpose of the book. We may, for instance, think that at the end of Job's life, when he received all those blessings, that that's the purpose of of this whole thing, that Job was again to be blessed, and that's the totality of its meaning. And usually when we hear preaching, we hear preaching on the first chapter, the second chapter, and then we skip to the 42nd chapter. (laughs) And that's how it's usually read. The book is not simply about the last chapter, though, or and it's not just simply futuristic in its interpretation. The Lord brought Job through the suffering. So it's about those other chapters, too. And, and James made that clear in James 5.11. He brought him through suffering that he may bless him, and that is only one aspect of its meaning. It appears, rather, that the suffering itself was the purpose of Job's life, that many generations may learn of the glory of God. The prologue and the epilogue do contain and contain, do not rather contain the full purpose, but the dialogue found in the middle 39 chapters contained a great deal of its purpose. It is the all things that God is working for us that bear this eternal weight of glory. Those chapters that people mostly skip are important. And that's part of the reason why I want to study and get a greater grasp of this book. The trial itself and finding its present meaning is the reason God gave us this book. And it is so that the trial in our life itself is for the glory of God, that others may come to worship him as it was with Job. There is a reason, and for good or bad, the dialogue gives us that deeper sense. God is doing something, and we know that God is doing something in the trial, but the men speaking don't. Sometimes God sends cold and ice, as Elihu will later say in Job 37. He sends the storm, he sends the cold, he sends the trial for correction of some sin, or sometimes for the health and benefit of the land, or sometimes for a greater purpose of mercy. There are various reasons God does things. God has varying purposes, and we may never know, as Job did in this life, what they are. But they are there, and we must seek them out. We do know that whatever the context or the circumstance, it is for the glory of God. Remember, James stated that Job had a compassionate end. The story itself had this compassionate end. Job found the very God that he sought, or rather he was found of him.
To sum up this brief and somewhat erratic introduction, and I admit that it's erratic as I'm just kind of spitballing a few things uh, to kind of preface our introduction, this book has value for the Christian here and now. I'm struck by the words of Jonathan Edwards, who probably summed this up uh, the best, and therefore I'm going to quote him at length. Jonathan Edwards said, it's important that we should have a book to teach us how to conduct ourselves under affliction. Seeing the church of God here is in a militant state, and God's people, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of heaven. The church is for a long time under trouble, meets with fiery trials and extreme sufferings before her time of peace and rest in the latter ages of the world. Therefore, God has given us a book most proper in these circumstances, the book of Job. And through, or rather, though written on occasion of the afflictions of a particular saint, it was probably at first given to the church in Egypt under her afflictions there, and is made use of by the apostle to comfort Christians under persecution. God was also pleased in this book of Job to give some view of the ancient divinity before the giving of the law. It was Jonathan Edwards. I cannot think that there is a better book than the book of Job for us to study. This most old and ancient of all the books of the scripture, nothing is more fitting for the Christian who suffers in this world for the glory of their Lord. Paul said this in Romans 8, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And I know Job would probably add an amen. So with that being said, let us introduce ourselves to the words of this book. I will get no further than verse 1 in the very next few minutes and just some passing mentioned. The glory of God is shown in the initial blessings of Job. Again, we read, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. We learn in the first and subsequent verses of God's grace to a man. The spiritual blessings are given in the first verse, and then on another occasion we'll talk about some of the, the other blessings that flow in the first six verses total. But the spiritual blessings are here given first, and from them flow all the other blessings. I want us to look at Job differently. He was one that was blessed of God, not in chapter 42, but in chapter 1, verse 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's what we're reading here in this verse. This is what this man had. Good and perfect gifts that came to him from his Lord. There was nothing specific about this man that made him the object of grace. He's not said, there's, it didn't say there was this really good man and this man was had these spiritual attributes. He was simply a man. God blesses whom God wills. Who Job is is not a matter of first importance. It could have been anybody. 
Nonetheless, Job was a real man in real history who was really blessed of God. He was real, living in a real place with real with a real name and real attributes. And those spiritual graces were given to him by God. He was not righteous and God-fearing because of his own efforts, by the works of his own flesh, but because God made him these things. The fact that the initial state of Job was a blessed state of grace is seen both in the complaint of Satan in chap- in this first chapter, 9 through 11, and again in 20, uh, 21, or, or chapter 2, verse 10, and in the testimony of Job himself. In verse 21, for instance, shall we not, shall we receive, in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we not receive, shall we receive good things and not evil things from the hands of God as well, was his testimony. It is this initial state of grace that will be, that is going to be what is tried in this book to see if it's true. And a major question that we're going to have to ask throughout this entire book is whether this faith, these, this grace of God is a true grace and whether or not God's grace is sufficient. And both of those are going to be affirmed. We will see and we will find that the faith of Job is a true faith and God's grace was sufficient to bring him through all of these things. He lived in the land of Uz, as you and I have already talked about. It was a place in the table of nations. It was close to the Chaldeans, apparently, and the Sabians, as this first chapter will bear out. It may have been connected with the ancient Edomite, I can't talk, Edomites prior to the Exodus, Jeremiah 25.20. It was a known land, though, and there is a man who lived there who was blessed of God. This blessed man was named Job, or as it's pronounced in the Hebrew, Eov. And that spelling, or that, that, that pronunciation, Eov, uh, is, makes him different than two other people that are also called Job. Job, the son of Issachar in Genesis 46.13, an obvious namesake. Or Jobab, an Edomite king in Genesis 36.33. There is no direct knowledge, and I always like to know what names mean. But there's no direct knowledge of the meaning of the name. And therefore, what I'm going to tell you about the meaning of the name is really speculative. Job could, as an original Hebrew meaning, uh, which is far more likely, mean an object of wrath or enmity. Or, some people argue, that Job has an Arabic origin, and it would mean one who turns to God or one who is penitent. Regardless of the origin, the original reader, the people who originally heard, this of this particular man knew him to be an object of God's grace. And I think either one of those meanings would bear up in this. Not just in the outcome, but he was a subject of God's grace as a man in the very beginning of his story. He was an object of wrath who became an object of mercy. 
And if this is at all a recapitulation of this as the story unfolds and the name has any meaning, Job becomes one who is assaulted of God or is brought again to repentance. The end does not change this introduction of him and the gracious attributes that are connected to him at the beginning. Job was already an object of grace prior to the story unfolding. Far from reading this book as God bringing evil upon a good man, this is a story of God using a vessel of his mercy for his glory, as in Romans 9, 23. And that man, by the grace of God, is introduced as one by the grace of God who had spiritual gifts attributed to him. So we have this list of, of, of gifts. Whether these attributes should be seen as a single thing looked at from differing aspects or whether they are distinct things apart from each other is really a minute point. Uh, if you were to read this in the Septuagint, uh, it would say uh, it would read a little differently. Um, he it would say that Job was a true man, blameless man, a righteous and just man, a godly or God fearing man, and he was one that was departing presently from evil practices. So. The translators of the Septuagint possibly saw Job as a repentant man who was attributed with these qualities by grace as he was turning from idolatry to the living God. One commentator uh, stated that these four are synonyms that, that seen together describe Job and his piety. Uh he is he is uh, one who has his whole heart disposed towards God and what is good, as well as disposed towards mankind. He is one that is with uh, that is righteous and without deviation. Uh, he is conformed to that which is right. He is one that is fearing God and consequently bring actuating that fear by departing and being aloof and opposed to all that is not of God. Now, I'm not going to spend time in the commentaries there, but uh, the Septuagint and, and the commentaries sometimes look at these very differently. I just want to quickly mention these four and setting aside these other interpretations, these four things that we have. We have these descriptions of Job as one blessed of, or graced of God. These are ultimately the graces that will be tested and questioned. So what are they? First, the authorized version said that Job was perfect. Now, that doesn't mean he was sinless, of course, but he was perfect. Now, in the original language here, this is a predicate adjective. The same truth was attributed to Noah in Genesis 6-9, assinuated about Abraham in Genesis 17-1. Both were likewise subjects of grace in a wicked world. The Septuagint that I just referenced used two words to describe this grace. He was true, as in genuine, and he was blameless. So he was unhypocritical. And if examined, 
he would be found unblameable and irreproachable. I think immediately of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 when it talks about a bishop must be blameless. That's what he was. He was blameless. God gave him integrity in his faith. And that's that word, the Hebrew word tom, captures this, this truth. And it, and it mirrors what I think is the testimony of Paul about his own life, where he says in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful. And God delighted in this grace being lived out in Job. He challenged Satan in verse 8 and again in chapter 2, verse 3, and says, have you considered Job that he is perfect in the authorized language or blameless? Such a grace brings peaceful ends to men. The psalmist said, mark the perfect man and behold the upright for in for the end of that man is peace. Psalm 37 verse 37. Second, another predicate adjective is added. He was upright. Yasar. Whereas perfect intended to be manward, a manward description, upright appears to be a Godward description. He was right or straight or pleasing in the eyes of God. This del and the delight of God is equally apparent in this one as well as the narrative continues. It is a grace. Seeing Job was, a was part of a fallen race, that there is none that does good, Ecclesiastes 7.29, and does not sin. And yet Job, like Abraham in Genesis 15.6, was counted by God to be right. To be blameless before men and just before God are moral and forensic terms that sum up the righteousness of God gifted to man. God so worked in Job that no man could bring an accusation against him, and that's going to be seen as we go throughout this book. And God counted him just before his own bar of justice. That's grace. There's grace behind these relational truths, or, or these forensic truths. And now we're going to add some relational truths. Job feared God and turned from evil. So third, Job feared God. Yahweh, Elohim. This is also a predicate adjective, this, this fear. But unlike the previous adjectives, this, is, this adjective is in the construct state and has a relational aspect. And that construct is just the way the Hebrew language works. This adjective finds itself in construct. It's related to something else. Or in other words, this fear that Job had as an attribute of his character had its object. God. He feared. He was fearful of God. The previous truths were truths about Job, which as he was held as an object by others, man and God. This attribute and the following has to do with how Job saw and related to God. There is no sinful man 
that fears God. By the fear of God, men depart from iniquity. And this fear of God that he had was what was, was that very thing. As we continue on, we're going to read about how that touches on Job as a sinner. Job feared God, and in the very next phrase, eschewed evil. So this is grace. It's a beginning grace. Great. It's this fear of God that makes that gives knowledge, that gives wisdom. Those will be attested in this book and repeated again by Solomon in Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it leads to the hatred of evil that we read about in this very same text, Proverbs 8.13. Those that fear God hate evil. And it's the host of many other graces. Moses, for instance, uh, said that the fear of God is, is, is a call of grace. We are called to fear God, to revere God in all things. And what is this fear? Well, it's simply this. Job saw God for who God was. And like other of the saints that also feared God, he gloriously quaked and was changed by that fear. There was no room, in other words, for idolatry in his heart to reduce God to something less. He knew God to be great. He knew God to be awesome. He knew God to be glorious. He knew God to be rightly the object of worship and only the object of worship. And this is grace. And then one final point. Then there was, the scripture gives this final grace. He eschewed evil. He, in other words, the verb is turn or was turning. And this time it's a participle, acting like a predicate adjective. So it's something still attributed to him. He was a man who was turning aside or from or to something. It too is in this construct state and has this object. Evil, this time, is the object. And based on the context, this construct of relationship has an oblative sense. He is turning from. He is getting us far away from evil and evil practices, as the Septuagint would call it, uh, uh, pragma, uh, evil pragma uh, practices. Uh, he's turning away from them in all these forms. He hated what was contrary to God. He hated it when he found, because he feared God. He was led by God from evil. As we pray, deliver us from evil. He was seeking God in that manner. He was granted by God this repentance, this turning. He was granted this whole life of repentance. And that will find itself true again as we read through this entire story, story rather, this man was indeed blessed by God with grace. And as we draw this introduction to a conclusion, we will find that these graces that we're reading about, that were given to him of God, are sufficient. And brothers and sisters in Christ, 
the grace that God has given us is just as real and it's just as sufficient. As Paul said, as he struggled with his thorn in the flesh, your grace, God, is sufficient for us. So I beg you as we consider going through this book and learning the truths through it, that we begin with this simple summation about Job. Job was a sinner who was blessed of God with grace. And that's how the book begins. May the Lord bless each and every one of you.